Second Kings chapter 13. We'll read verses 10 to 19. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, began Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, to reign over Israel in Samaria, and reigned sixteen years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he walked therein. And the rest of the acts of Joash, and all that he did, and his might wherewith he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat upon his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said to him, Take bow and arrows. And he took to him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek, till thou have consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice, and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him, and said, Thou shouldst have smitten five or six times, then hadst thou smitten Syria, till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Let us pray. We give thee thanks, O Lord, for the assurance of thy word that there is victory to the church of God and to every believer in the battle upon which they are engaged. We thank thee that as we seek to put on the whole armor of God, it is not with doubts as to whether in the end of the day victory is secure. It is with a sure knowledge that the Lord is King, King of kings and Lord of lords, and that none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? the kings of the nations, those we have been reading about in this passage of thy word, and many others before and since. They set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break asunder their bands, let us cast their cords from us. But as they do so, we thank thee that he that sits in heaven shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. For thou art the sovereign Lord, and thy purposes they shall always be fulfilled. And in that confidence we come to thee today, and we come to pray for thy work committed to us in our day and generation. We commend to thee thy cause in our congregation and community. We thank thee for every heart in whom thou art winning the victory of grace. 
We thank thee for men and women and young people in our midst who are being brought out of darkness into light. We thank thee for those who have acknowledged this and weak though they are in themselves are made strong in thee. And we have confidence that thou art still winning battles among us and that there will be day by day and year by year victories for God and for his truth even in our congregation and community. We pray for every effort that is made through the preaching of the word, through every kind of evangelism, through the day-to-day -day witness of thy believing people in their ordinary occupations. We pray that every endeavor would be blessed by thee. And not only for our congregation do we pray, and for all among us, for those who particularly need thee among us, for sick and suffering ones, for sorrowing ones, for perplexed ones, we commend them all to thee. But we also pray for thy church throughout our presbytery, throughout our land, and to the ends of the earth. We commend to thee every effort made to reach out with thy word to men and women in their need. And we do look towards the world at large. As we do so, we are obeying thy command. Lift up thine eyes and look at the fields white or ready to harvest. And so we do look to the fields throughout the world, thanking thee for nations where not so long ago there was no Christian church, but today there is, and Jesus Christ is being acknowledged and his gospel preached. And we pray for thy blessing there. We commend to thee thy church in Kenya, and as thy servant whom we've had here over these months with us in the congregation as she returns may it be not in her own strength but in thine conscious that uh, whatever gifts thou hast given her they are not enough and they are tainted by sin but as the Holy Spirit takes them and as he empowers then blessing can and must follow and so we pray for that church that we here do not know personally but as part of the body of Christ and ask that in that nation thy hand would be upon thy people. We pray for the president of Kenya. We thank thee that he is prepared to acknowledge himself publicly as a believer in Jesus Christ. And we pray that as many pressures are brought to bear, for Satan will not rest in such a situation, we pray that he would be strong in Christ and lead his people in the ways of truth and of godliness. And now we pray for ourselves, that as we turn to thy word, we would have an understanding of thy truth, and be men and women of the word, men and women of Christ, and that the difference will be seen in our lives, in our homes, and wherever thou dost place us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now let's sing in Psalm 37, at verse 37. Psalm 37 at verse 37 to the tune St. Andrew. Now we were reading a moment ago about the deathbed of God's servant Elisha. What a difference between that and the, the end of what the Bible calls wicked men who have no faith and no hope. Well, this verse, the first verse, verse 37, is a beautiful picture of the deathbed of Elisha and of every child of God. Mark thou the perfect, and behold the man of uprightness, because that surely of this man the latter end 
is peace. We'll sing from verse 37 to the end of the psalm. that follows. Chapter 13 at verse 14. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. And Joash the king of Israel came down to him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now Elisha at this stage must be well over 80 years of age. For 60 years he has served God as a prophet in Israel, far longer than his predecessor Elijah. But for the last 45 of these 60 years, so obviously by far the greater part of it, he has scarcely been heard of in his ministry as prophet. We have been looking through the life of Elisha these past few months. We've seen some of his great miracles, some of the tremendous impact that he made on Israel. But all that, the miracles and the particular itineraries that are described for us, all that seems to have taken place in a relatively short span of time, certainly less than 10 years. But now for these last 45 years, things have been different. They correspond, these years, with the rains 
of King Jehu and King Jehoahaz. You remember last week how we saw that Elisha sent one of the sons of the prophets to anoint Jehu king over Israel. Well, Jehu and his son Jehoahaz reigned for some 45 years between them. And Elisha is heard of not at all, as far as we are concerned, during all these years. Now, it may be, of course, that he did perform miracles and that he was going out and about uh, in Israel unknown to all and sundry. But it seems more likely that God's plan for Elisha was that during all these years he should remain in comparative retirement, perhaps encouraging the people of God in the face of the evil days in which they were living, perhaps training quietly in the schools of the prophets the men who were to continue the witness to God's truth, but not it would appear in the same spectacular way in which he administered during the previous years. But what we need to bear in mind is that Elisha was no less the prophet of God, no less a man of God, serving him faithfully during the years of quietness and retirement and obscurity than he was when everybody knew about him than he was when he was performing magnificent miracles. He was just as much God's servant, though God's choice during the latter part of his life was for a quiet, retired ministry. There's a parallel, surely, as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ. For 30 years, he lived in obscurity in Nazareth, but he was no less the eternal Son of God. He was no less the Messiah during these years of retirement and obscurity than he was when he burst on the public scene with his miracles and his teaching and eventually his death and resurrection. And isn't there for us a reminder that though it's true God has his special moments, special outputings or outpourings of his power, what we would call revivals, and they come to the church and they come in God's sovereign way and time. Yet God is still the same God, and his power is still the same. Even though we may not see the spectacular, even though we may not be privileged to see the mighty outpourings that have been known throughout the church. And the call to us, as to Elisha, is to be faithful in every time, in the times of retirement and obscurity, if God's call is to be faithful in a quiet way and seeing perhaps much less than what we would like to see of his power being put forth, still God is the same, his word is the same, the call to obedience and to holiness are the same. And let us be ready by such a life for the time when God is pleased to work. And who knows, but that in our congregation we might be privileged to see just such days. But may we be ready during the quiet days, during the days that we sometimes call the day of small things, for God's great days and God's great power. So we come to the close of Elisha's life. And in this uh, sick bed, this deathbed scene that's portrayed for us, there are several things that I'd like to draw your attention to. And the first is this, the testimony of a godly life the testimony of a godly life. Now it's a remarkable thing, it seems to me, that Joash, 
king of Israel should take the trouble on this occasion to go to see Elisha. Joash, and may I just say in passing that we mustn't confuse this Joash king of Israel, the northern kingdom, with Joash the king of Judah. It's rather confusing that they had the same name and they were ruling about the same time. Joash the king of Judah was a very different character to Joash king of Israel because he was a wicked and an evil man, the man with whom we're dealing here. And so it's remarkable that being the kind of man Joash was, he should bother to go to see Elisha. His grandfather was Jehu. Now Jehu uh, was indeed, in some ways, God's instrument to execute his vengeance, his righteous and holy wrath on the wicked house of Ahab. But as we saw last week, Jehu took a, a special gusto uh, and enthusiasm in his cruelty. He, he loved killing people and eventually the judgment of God fell upon him also. And we read about Jehu that he took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord. That was this man's grandfather. His father was Jehoahaz. And in this very chapter, in the second verse, we read about this man, Joash's father, that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Joash was the same. We read it a few moments ago at verse 11. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And if you go into the next chapter, you find that his son, Jeroboam, who economically and military, militarily was a great success as a king, yet spiritually and morally was a disaster. And he too walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So here's this man. He's a, an evil man from an evil stock and he passes on his evil views to those who come after him. And yet, he comes to see the prophet of God. He comes to hear what God will say through this righteous, holy man, Elisha. Joash, he didn't care about God. He would no desire to leave his sin. So why then should he come to see the prophet? He knew perfectly well the kind of thing the prophet would say. He knew that God's law is invariable and that Elisha wasn't going to bend God's standards to make it easier for Joash to enter the kingdom of heaven. He knew that. He knew that God's inflexible righteousness was present there in Elisha and would be proclaimed to him. So why did he bother? Why did he not just stay away and leave the old prophet to die and end his ministry? Well, of course, it's because, surely, there were still the tattered shreds of the divinely given conscience within this man, Joash. Surely it's because, as the writer, uh, the preacher tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes, because God has put eternity in every man's heart. Now that doesn't mean that there is in everyone's heart a spark of goodness, because the fall has taken that away from us. What it does mean is that we have been made by the eternal God. We are not merely creatures of the dust. There is an eternity and we have to render account within eternity. And these things, every man, woman and child knows them. Knows within his heart or her heart of hearts. But they have not been made merely for this world. And Joash knew that. 
and however much he sinned and however much he followed the course of evil he knew there was that niggling feeling within him this isn't all there is there is a God and I'm responsible to God and I ought to go and see this prophet I don't like what he has to say but I must listen because God has something to say to me now of course we know from scripture and from history that sometimes men like Joash who had the power to do it they seek to silence this voice of conscience in the person of God's servants Ahab who was a king during Elijah's ministry he tried to do that remember how there was a prophet called Micaiah and Micaiah had been put in prison because Ahab didn't like his message his message of righteousness and you remember how when Jehoshaphat the king of Judah came to join forces with Ahab and they went out to battle together Jehoshaphat said to Ahab after all the prophets of Baal had prophesied smooth things easy victory Jehoshaphat knew it wasn't true and he says isn't there a prophet of the Lord here that we can inquire of him and you remember Ahab's very striking words oh yes there is there's that fellow Micaiah but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me but evil and because that was so he clapped him in prison that he might shut his mouth as far as prophesying was concerned and we read from the story that when Micaiah came uh, Ahab was once again uh, hurt to the quick by the righteousness of Micaiah's message and he shut him up in prison and stayed there no doubt until his dying day and so there are those who have the power like Joash who will seek to silence the voice of conscience in the messengers of God if they can but even so it's amazing that there is this, this strange compulsion to listen you have it in Herod Herod were John the Baptist preaching in Israel and Herod was deeply offended that John the Baptist should take it upon himself to criticize the monarch who was he to complain about the king's marriage not only Herod but his in inverted commas his wife Herodias were furious at the righteous preaching of John and so John was shut up in prison but you remember that striking comment in the gospel that tells us that Herod occasionally would take John out of the dungeon and bring him up into the court and say to him John preach a message from God and Herod heard him gladly isn't that strange a wicked man steeped in evil and yet he feels compelled to listen to the word of God you see that is the testimony of a godly life Micaiah uh, Elisha John the Baptist and it's compelling and people who won't who don't want to listen feel that they have to listen to such a testimony and even when John the Baptist was dead there was still that testimony for when Jesus came and Jesus performed great miracles what did, John, what did Herod say oh it's John the Baptist I thought I thought that I'd finished with him but John the Baptist has come back to life and he's doing these great miracles you see his voice his conscience was being spoken to by the testimony of godly men you know that's on the one hand it's a warning a warning to all of us to hear the word of God but it's also a great encouragement to Christian men and women you may be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you may feel that well your witness is not worth a great deal you've so little influence 
You, you don't preach publicly. You don't uh, occupy any particular position of authority. Your circle of acquaintances is so small. Uh, you may feel that you're doing so little. But the word of God comes and says, don't believe that. Remember the testimony of a godly life. And remember that Elisha was 45 years, as far as we can gather, in obscurity in Israel. And yet, his testimony is speaking throughout the nation. And so it still is. And if you and I, believing in Jesus Christ, are faithful in our witness day by day in the kind of people we are and the kind of lives we live, then there are many around us who will not read the epistles of Paul, but they will be compelled to read the epistle of a godly life and see Christ written there. And so we have this scene, the royal visitor, in all the vigor of his early manhood, for he's just ascended to the throne, no doubt full of optimism, no doubt feeling that he'll be the best king Israel has ever had. In all that optimism and all that vigor, he stands before the prophet, who's a gaunt, wasted, dying old man. And yet, when you look at that scene, what is it that you see? Well, the first man is a man who is just as fading grass, for all his royal robes and kingly authority. And the second man, that you wouldn't give anything for in human terms, he's spent, he's done. He's the one who is strong in godliness. Well, there's the testimony of a godly life. Notice also, as you go through this incident, the combination of human effort and divine power. In this rather strange incident that's recorded us here about the bow and arrows, you have the combination of, on the one hand, human effort, and on the other, divine power. Now, it's not just play-acting that you have here, when Elisha says to Joash, take your bow and arrows, put a bow, an arrow in the bow, stretch the bow, and then Elisha puts his hand on the king's, and he says, shoot, and the king shoots. It's not just play acting, and it's certainly not that kind of juju magic where, you know, the kind of thing where you stick pins in a, in a model or a statue of your enemy and then you expect him to suffer in the same way. It's, it's light years removed from that kind of thing. It is God Almighty using these symbolic actions to proclaim a vital message from heaven to earth. It's, if you like, a kind of visual aid whereby God reinforces the word visually so that the king will not only hear God's word but by this means it will come home with power and with, with fresh uh, impetus to his heart and conscience. God spoke to this man how? Well, by shooting the arrow God was showing him his duty as king to defend his people, to be up and doing in the defense of the realm and in the doing of righteousness. He couldn't just sit back. He had to take action. And on the other hand, by Elisha placing, Elisha as God's representative, placing his hand on the bow, God was saying to Joash, I want you to be active as king. I want you to be a diligent king. But remember, you're helpless without me. 
unless the hand of God is upon you as you labor you can do nothing now the fact that Josh was unworthy totally unworthy of the lesson that was being taught him doesn't invalidate the principle which is still true that God calls us to be active in his name and at the same time reminds us that all our activity and all our endeavors will avail us nothing unless we have the power of heaven upon us now it's true in every area it's true at the outset of the Christian life God is sovereign in salvation man of himself can do nothing to uh, receive to gain the favor of God but he is dead in trespasses and sins he needs a quickening power of the Holy Spirit in order that he might come to life and yet we are reminded in scripture that we must repent and we must believe it is not God who repents but he has no need to repent it is not God who exercises faith and trust in Jesus Christ but he is complete in himself it is we the sovereignty is God's but he calls us to believe in Jesus Christ the battle is the Lord's but we must put on the whole armor of God work out says the apostle your own salvation but remember that it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure and so if at the outset of the Christian life with regard to conversion and salvation if we seek to do it without God's hand on the bow as it were then the arrow will misfire if for example someone comes to God and says look I've lived a decent life I've been everything I should be to my neighbors I don't think anybody can say I haven't been a good citizen or I haven't been uh, remembering the religious side of things it is human effort and it is of no value before God the hand of God is missing or if someone says but listen I was at a, a big meeting and uh, I was very moved and I, I put up my hand or whatever else was asked of me and I made a decision but then if it is only of the flesh and only moved by what one hears or by what uh, is happening around one and the hand of God is not in the bow it will miss fire it will not be truly a work of grace but let's think of it in the Christian life a man or a woman who's come to Jesus Christ by grace believed in the Lord Jesus received him as Savior and set out upon this Christian life the same principle holds true that unless God's hand is on the bow unless his power is in our life all our efforts will be in vain now let me give a few illustrations I'm sure that uh, Nettie will forgive me if I take her, uh, not her and herself, but uh, as a missionary going out, as one example. Uh, here we have a missionary going out to Kenya. Now she's got all the experience, 17 years of it. Uh, she can go into that hospital and take up the post of matron, uh, more or less, without any difficulty. She's done it before. She speaks the language of the people. She's done all her nursing training. She knows the culture. She knows the setup. And God comes and says, yes, all that's true, but without me, you can do nothing. And it'll all be wasted, and it'll all be meaningless if it is done in our own strength. If it is not done with God's hand upon the bow, if it is not his work and his name 
that is being glorified. Or again in a congregation. There may be times when there are particular needs, perhaps particular financial needs. Sometimes a congregation has a, has a huge expense. Perhaps a roof needs redone or something of that nature. And the temptation comes to us to do all the efforts by ourselves and perhaps to, because we have this to attend to, to say, well, we can't give to the missionary side and we can't give to evangelism. We've got to concentrate on this. And we do it according to our own thinking and our own ways of doing it. With much effort, certainly. With much enthusiasm. Oh, but if God's hand is not in the bow, it's of the flesh. It may bring some short-term benefit, but it won't be the glorious work of God and the victory that God desires for his church or for his people. But it may be the individual Christian. Perhaps somebody here very worried about something in their lives. Tense. Head up. Because there are problems of one nature or another. And uh, you find yourself being all... Uh, steamed up as we say about these things and God comes and says look let my hand rest upon the bow because it's not only a hand of power it's also a hand of calming and of steadying as we in our own efforts so often seek to fulfill the work and the witness that God has laid upon us and forget that it is all of the Lord uh, let me illustrate well, some 20, 20 years ago, uh, I began to learn to drive when I was nearly 30. And as many of you know, if you don't learn when you're young or younger than that, it gets more difficult. <clears throat> I remember on one occasion, uh, I didn't find it easy. The first few lessons, I began to wonder if I'd ever learned to drive a car. I still remember on one occasion going down uh, Dingwall West End and the instructor told me well you're going to turn down at that corner and uh, I saw a car a whole stream of cars coming towards me I looked in the mirror and I saw a car behind me uh, there was a wall at one corner and uh, you know how it is you've got to do the signal and you've got to uh, have your foot in the brake and you've got to get the right gear and I got totally flustered I still remember, now he wasn't a very soothing kind of man, the driving instructor, far from it. But on this occasion, he just took his hand, as I was trying to find the gear, and getting so het up and flustered, he just put his hand and laid it in mine and said, take it easy. Well, I got round the corner and I drive now. Now, that on a human level, apply it to the Lord. His hand upon the bow. And when we are so flustered, when we are trying in the power of the flesh to carry out our work, the Lord comes as Elisha laid that hand and he says, Take it easy. My power is given to you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So there's this combination of human effort and divine power. We must be zealous for good works. We are called to the conflict. We must be up and doing but God lays his hand upon the bow and says, In my strength, you will have the victory. And so we come to the closing point of this uh, incident. We've seen the testimony of a godly life. We've seen the combination of human effort and divine power. And there's also the call to believing perseverance. Now the final part of this incident is even stranger than the first part. 
Once the first arrow has been shot, Elisha says to the king of Israel, take the arrows and strike the ground with them. Now I suppose that what is meant here is uh, all the arrows, uh, a pile of them, out of the, the quiver. Some feel that perhaps what he was asked to do was to take them one by one and fire them at the ground. A seemingly ridiculous thing to do. But so was to take all the arrows and hit the ground with them. And this is, is what you have here. You have Joash asked to do a certain thing. Strike the ground with the arrows. And he feels stupid. What a, what a ridiculous thing to do. Yes, fire the arrow. He could see some sense in that. But just to fire it at the ground or hit the ground with the arrow, it seemed so ridiculous, so ludicrous. And presumably, he did it the first three times, well, just to humor the old man. After all, Elisha, he, he does reserve, deserve some respect. He is a prophet of God. I better just do it once, twice, and rather reluctantly, and feeling rather ashamed, embarrassed at doing it, he does it. And then he stops. And Elisha says, you should have done it five or six times. You should have kept doing it until the word to stop came to you from God. And of course the picture was of his efforts against the Syrians. The Syrians came in to invade Israel. And we see at the end of the chapter that when they did come, the very close of verse 25, the Syrians came and three times did Joash beat him, the king of Syria, and recovered the cities of Israel. Only three times. And then he failed. Now obviously, this incident is not teaching us that the actual striking of the ground with the arrows was somehow going to win the victory. It's not that. In the action in itself would do nothing. It's the same as with Naaman in the previous incident with Elisha. Uh, Elisha says to him, go and bathe in the river Jordan seven times. And we can all understand Naaman's reaction when he says, why should I go to the river Jordan? Are not Abana and Farper rivers of Damascus better than all the rivers of Jordan, of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? It wasn't that the river Jordan had a particular cleansing power. It wasn't that its waters were any better than the waters of Damascus. But it was obedience. God said, and God was testing this man Naaman. God said, this is my way of cleansing. Are you prepared to submit to it? And God says to Joash, this is my way of victory. Are you prepared to submit to my direction? Are you prepared to believe in me? Are you prepared to persevere in that believing? And sadly, the wisdom of God was foolishness to Joash. And you know, you've got a picture there of the gospel. The gospel to many is foolishness. Come to the cross. Be cleansed in the blood of Jesus, who died 2,000 years ago. Believe that by repenting of sin and taking Christ as Savior, as our substitute, that that will alter our life, that that will make us different, that that will make us acceptable with God and ensure our place in heaven. Now it seems either too simple or too foolish or too archaic. The way of the cross is foolishness, but it's the only way. And if as yet you've never come by that way of the cross, there is no other way. 
but by the foolishness of God acknowledging sin and coming to Christ and recognizing him as the only Savior while George wouldn't accept it it was foolishness to him it is foolishness to many and to the Christian there comes this final message the message of perseverance not only believing that God's way however foolish it may appear to us is the right way but the call to persevere in the work of God fight the good fight of faith not just three times but keep going Satan never gives up nor should we in the name of God he that endures to the end says the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved and in prayer when we're so ready to give up we prayed again and again and nothing happens and so we're tempted to give up it's very wearisome and the Lord says that we should pray without ceasing that we should not be weary in our prayers that we should keep striking as it were until God is pleased to give his own answer and so as we close let's all beware of the attitude of Joash see Joash's attitude was this I'll go so far with God but no further I'll go a certain distance accepting God's word three times but, but no more if God doesn't prove himself in the time that I set him then that's the end of it there are those who will trust him perhaps someone like that today trust him for salvation believe yes that Jesus is the only saviour believe in their heart in him and know him by grace be a child of God and yet not prepared to trust God not only for salvation but for keeping them not prepared to witness openly not prepared ever to let their mouth speak a word that will indicate that they are trusting in Jesus not prepared to hear his command this do in remembrance of me and profess him openly agree yes that he can keep that he can save but not that he can keep that's like Joash three times but no more as if God is limited in any way trust him perhaps for material provision when things are going all right but then when there are problems when there is difficulty in our finances in our homes say well I can't go the way of faith any longer I've done it thus far but now I must do it in my way or perhaps as a congregation believe that God yes he can bring sinners to Christ but they've got to be sinners from our kind of background they've got to be brought up in the free church or in the highlands and have an understanding of our way of thinking they must know about the Sabbath and the shorter catechism and in that way then they can come to faith in Christ but these outsiders these people who come in who don't know anything about our kind of religious background we can't expect it from them well that's striking three times and saying God can do no more God is not limited he is sovereign and as he said to Joash he says to you and me as individuals and as a congregation don't limit God he is able able to do exceeding abundantly according to his mighty power let us then praise him for all that is past and trust him for all that's to come let us pray oh Lord our God we give thee thanks that thy servant Elisha though dead yet speaketh and we pray that our ears would be open to hear the voice of God through the life 
and the testimony and the words and the actions, not only of Elisha, but of all thy servants portrayed to us in Holy Scripture. And may we, as a result of what thou hast shown us from thy word today, may we be spared the sin of Joash, of trusting thee so far but no further. May we be able to say with the psalmist that we will trust thee with our whole heart, that we will commit our lives unreservedly to thee and to thy service. And may we thus know thy mighty power among us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you.